Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I thought I loved you Somewhere in the Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with Kevin Kelly, senior maverick at Wired magazine and author of multiple best-selling books about the future of technology. He's also the originator of the Thousand True Fans Theory and is best known for his radical optimism. His newest book, Excellent Advice for Living, is a collection of 450 modern proverbs for a pretty good life. It would be fantastic if you could rate, review and subscribe to the podcast, as doing that helps more people to discover it. I'd love it if you were to take a look at my Ko-fi page, which is a place where I share thoughts about creativity, new works in progress and other bits and pieces. It's also a platform where people can share tips and donations on a one-off or monthly basis. You can also join my brand new mailing list to get the latest news about projects I'm working on. And you can find information about my Ko-fi page, mailing list, other podcast episodes and all my past and current projects by visiting my website, robertlaymusic.co.uk. Thank you. Hey, Kevin, how are you? I am really delighted to be here. Thanks for asking and I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. Oh, great. Well, I'm really excited to chat to you about this. There's so much of your stuff and writing and thoughts that has um, intrigued and impressed and made me think and confused me (laughs) over the last few years. So I'm kind of excited to get to chat about that sort of stuff, really. And where I wanted to start with, with this new book, This Excellent Advice for Living, just in a sort of practical sense, I was interested. There it is. And it's been great to read it. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah. And I've also, I'd, I'd already seen the YouTube video that I think you did a few years ago as well. So the, the original yes. plan for this was, yes. it was a birthday, I think, that was the original inspiration. That's true. I On my 68th birthday, I started this process of trying to write down stuff that I wish I'd known earlier for my adult children. And then I at one point sat down and dictated it or read it and um, for YouTube, because that seemed the thing, uh, the thing to do. And um, it's since grown where I had more to say and the kids um, really appreciated it. So I kept channeling the ancients, Stoics and the Bible and Confucius, which is where probably most of this stuff was first said who knows where it began. Um, and so I'm just kind of trying to put it into my own words in a way that might be a little bit more memorable. And uh, these are kind of more like reminders than than anything else. And the process for collecting them then, is it? do you keep a little journal of quotes that you like and that you pick up on and they go on the list? How does that work? Yeah, so I, well, I've been collecting quotes for a very, very long time. I always enjoyed the well-said aphorism, the little adage, the um, the kind of uh, earworm that would stick in your brain, and I would use those to try and change my behavior. I would repeat them to myself, and there were there were particular bits of advice that were very practical that I picked up along the way, and I would write them down when I thought of them to try and help me remember them. And then once I got this project going, then then I kind of much more deliberately would sit down every now and then and say, 
hmm, what do I know and I, that I feel very strongly um, sure about and that I want, that I would wish they'd known earlier and I'll try and write it down. And it usually begins kind of a big amorphous thing in my, my job is to kind of reduce it down to a sentence. And um, that's uh, later on, I realized, well, they could be tweets, but mm. the, originally it was just, I wanted this something that you could remember and repeat to yourself. And so I would, I have a little, you know, Apple notes just on my phone, whatever. And I would, when I thought of something, I would, I would jot it down. And are some of these things that um, you say you wish you'd known them earlier, but are there some that were like the cornerstones of your um, being a father and all that sort of stuff that your kids would have recognized from the past or are they more recent additions? Well, actually, when the book was done, I gave it to my kids and my son said, um, you know, we never heard you say any of these, <laughs> but you certainly taught us them. I recognize mm -hmm. them. And so... Um, uh, the th these aren't th these are things that we weren't repeating to to them. That's kind of why I, I, I put them into the book. It, it was like I know we haven't told you these things, but but I would have benefited if I had heard these earlier, and maybe you will too. So I'm going to actually put them down mm. and 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 convey them. And so um, I, I I don't they weren't they weren't things that we said. They were things that we did. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's kind of, there's a lot of it that I think is, you mentioned stoicism, it's a sort of attitude towards life a lot of the time, isn't it, I think. And there's yes. there's things that people might recognise from a different way that it's been said in the past. In terms of the creative side of things, a couple that sort of jumped out at me that I thought would be interesting to pick up on. Making art is not selfish, it's for the rest of us. So... Yeah when we have the imposter syndrome of what's the point of me putting my thing out, there's enough, there's enough music, there's enough film out there. Why does anybody need my bit? What's, what's the answer to that? Well, I, I, you do constantly want to ask yourself, um, why are you here? What is, what are you here for? And, um, how can you individually make a contribution? And that's, um, th that's a that's a very difficult thing to answer. That's really really hard to answer. And if you're like anybody, if you're like the normal person like myself, it's going to take most of your life mm. to kind of answer that question. You're probably not going to have an answer to it when you're 21. Occasionally, some people do, but most people don't. So you're on a journey to try and answer that question, and um, you never really arrive either. But you can get close to it, and it's more of a direction than it is a destination. So you're constantly kind of moving to, you know, do what you only can do. And that may be art. Um, and in which case, um, that's, you're doing your thing. And um, hopefully that thing is something that other people appreciate. And you may need to work at that mm. in terms of um, helping them to understand what it is. If that's the thing that you're here to do. Um, but I believe that every every person is here for something, and that art, the word art, is a I'm using it in this case in the broadest sense of stuff that we create, and it could be a, a business that you start, it could be a product, it could be a manuscript, it could be a scientific in, uh, insight. It, it, I'm using it in that broadest sense, but you're here to create things, and whether or not they are 
commercially successful is not really important to us. It may be important to you, and you have to figure out some way to, of, of doing that. But generally, if you are really being you and creating something that only you, you can create, people tend to to respond to that. Um, there, 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 there is something about when a person is doing something that no one else is doing, even if it's weird, hmm. it still can move us. It still can strike us. It's, we We can still appreciate it. And so, um, so yes, I think when you have the imposter syndrome, just remember that when you are, if you're trying to do something that other people can do, then that your imposter might be correct, right? If if, if you're just imitating, if you're kind of imitating Van Gogh, yeah, you're you're an imposter. It's okay to do that while you're a student and you study and you can copy things. And I recommend that people mm-hmm. copy things in order to get them out of their system. But if you are really aiming to be copying others what others have done others then then that is kind of uh you're kind of like an imposter but what you really want to be doing is is kind of inventing your own definition of success i mean you your, your success probably shouldn't really look like other people's too much okay and so um when you're doing that then it's harder to feel like you're an imposter because there you're just the original. You, you are the, you're the ordained. And linked to that, the idea, don't be the best, be the only. Be the only. Right. Same thing. The best is a very narrow thing. There's only a number one. There's only one that can be the best. Yeah. And you're limiting immediately your chances of, of that. Whereas if you are the only, that's wide open. There are many ways to do it. You don't have any competition while you're there. And um, it's much easier and much more likely that you would be in a breakthrough area because that's where they always originate, out on the edges where there's only. So think about that. It's like if you're trying to be, you know, the world's best basketball player or the world's best um, ballerina or the world's best uh you know, graffiti artist. Mm. There can only be one of those by definition. And so you want to be doing something as much as possible where there's no language for what it is that Ah. you do, where we don't have words, where you're kind of out there and you're, you're picking up the things that made you weird as a kid. All those things are moving in the same direction of trying to um, help you, um, find and become the best self you can be. And there's something really exciting in that because sort of as a, as a creator, I'm a musician and an actor and you sort of, as you start out, you think, Oh, so-and-so did that. And then they did that right. and this led there. And that's the way you do it. But a lot of the stuff I'm looking at is 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. So the world has changed so much anyway, in terms of how the world moves and stuff. But also that thing of you're never going to be exactly like that person. You shouldn't aim to right. be as, as you're saying, but that mix of that and that, that is you um, and being multi-passionate is something that I found difficult over the years as well I think there was a point where you sort of think well if I want to be a musician if I want to dig that well I've got to keep digging that well till I hit the oil so I shouldn't really then leave that to go off and do this other thing like host a podcast but the point is I'm interested in all these things and maybe that combination of stuff is is me 
you're a multi-passionate individual as well. Like I think I've heard you talking about it should be difficult to really explain what it is that you're doing, especially if it's something really original. Yeah, so, so, so like you have a very honest, authentic interest in music and you have this other interest in podcasts and it's very possible that there's some weird combination of podcast and music that nobody has thought of and that maybe only you can do that uh, has yet to be discovered and you'd have a great difficulty in explaining to someone what it was. Yeah. And um, I'm, you know, I, I could just like, well, maybe it's something where um, instead of interviewing someone, you just play music to each other or you have a, you have a, you have a conversation with music. I, I don't know. I'm just yeah, making yeah. stuff up, but there is something that's possible. And that multifacetism is again, not a bug. It's a feature. It's the feature if you release yourself from the expectation of what your success should look like. And that's what I call about inventing a new definition, a new way of succeeding. And um, it's hard. It's hard because there are obviously paths that aren't going to work out. It can't be that every path works out. So there's going to be paths that don't work out. And this is another piece of advice is that, you know, success requires you to Never give up or and give up when things need to be give up and then have the kind of wisdom to be able to tell the difference. Sure. And so um, that's why I'd say that, that the, the weird thing about becoming your best self is that you can't do it by yourself. You need your family, friends, colleagues, customers, clients, fans to help you on that journey to, to see who you are really becoming. And so you have to, you can't ignore the world around you and their responses to what it is you're doing. You have to pay attention. You can't be governed by them mm. completely or you can't obey them, but you have to use it as a means for discovering it. So so you can't become yourself by yourself. You need everyone in the world to help you make yourself unique. It's kind of a paradox. So in that journey of trying things, you do have to pay attention to what a response to and and it's not whether the people like it, it's whether or not it's authentically you. It's really what you should be doing. That's the answer. And and so their response is helping you get there. It's not that you're trying to please them. Mm-hmm. It's that their responses to your work are signals to help you guide your path. And sometimes trying to please others will actually take you further away from your own thinking. Yes, exactly. Right, right. And, I suppose- and, and, you know, this is the, the great conundrum for most artists, particularly like musicians is like, you know, they, they play the old song, play, yeah. play, you know, you, they want you to play the old song. If you were to listen to them, that's all that you would do. Um, but obviously to be an artist, you have to continue to, to, to grow and make new territory. And that's difficult because, it may not be pleasing at first to to the fans, mm-hmm. and so you are you. That's what I'm saying. You can't necessarily obey what your audience says, but you have to use it as a signal. Sometimes them not liking it might be the signal that you're on the right, right. track. I guess, but there's a right. certain amount of perspective it it would take. It could be years later that you look back and go, "That was the best right. project." I haven't heard any formula to help you know. <laughs> navigate that kind of labyrinth of how of 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 what's the word i can't dissecting 
the the fan responses. I mean, it's, you know, it's like reading. Do you want to read all the comments on your YouTube? Well, no, but you want to you want to read you want to want read the ones that your true fans, the ones who really know you, rather than the drive by fanatics. Um, so so yeah, so I think that's a part of maybe maturity of being able to to read the signals of the feedback and to uh, understand what to pay attention to or not. And and here's another bit of advice from the book, which is that when someone tells you that something is wrong or not working, they're usually right. But when they tell you what the solution is, they're usually wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so again, this is this idea of kind of like reading the, the reviews, reading the replies, taking this, this, what the universe is telling you. If, if the universe is telling you there's probably something wrong, they're probably right. If the universe is going to give you the solution to it, they're probably wrong. Mm. And this being multi-passionate then, the, the sort of things that you've done through your life, which, do you struggle to put a word or words on it on what it is that your your thing is and Absolutely. your job is? Absolutely, yes. I'm still, I'm 71 and I'm saying, what do I want to do when I grow up, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, and by the way, I, I, I have the opportunity to hang around with, some of the most accomplished people, some of the richest people in the world, some of the famous people, and you'll be shocked. But they're asking the same question <laughs> to themselves right now. What do I do? How do I, you know, what do I do when I grow up? Because it's like, and, and, and having a billion dollars does not answer this question. It actually makes the question even more difficult. Very, very difficult. It's a huge burden. And, and one of my bits of advice that are not in the book, which is, Dear listeners, if at all possible, never earn a billion dollars. Okay? It's not good for you in any way or your family. A couple hundred million, okay. But you don't want a billion. <laughs> you do say in the book that we don't want to be famous, which I guess is a... You don't want to be famous either. Yeah, exactly. For almost the same reason. It's very imprisoning, very corrupting. Uh, it's incredible burden. I mean... You can just, I mean, I'm talking about the, the fame, the level of fame where people recognize you off the street, like, you know, an Obama or movie star, you know, mm -hmm. Bob. It's, it's, it's really, really bad. And, and, and to seek it out is, it's really misguided. So, would we say, in terms of money and uh, fame, what we want is enough to do what we want? Ah, well, there's an interesting thing. I was going to say enough to do what you want to do, but we can come back to that, actually. But there's enough money to be comfortable and not have to worry about money and be helpful and treat people and yeah, all that sort of stuff. Warren Buffett, who you know, had so much money, he, he could not literally give it away. So he had to hire someone like Bill Gates to give away his yeah. money because what else is he going to do with it? He There was a question about how much money he gave to his kids. He says, well... I want to give them enough so they can do whatever they need to do, but not enough so that they don't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's one that's one way to parse it. Yeah. And with the fame, it's I guess having respect and notoriety and um opportunities because of your your Yeah. Uh, I mean I said another piece is that you you really don't want twelve million people that like you. You should have twelve million people who respect and love mm. you. I, I mean twelve. Not you don't want twelve million people to like you, you want twelve people to 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 respect and like you and i think the respect is the thing that we crave mm -hmm. more than like i think we're under 
I feel no obligation to like everybody. Mm. I feel an obligation to respect everybody. I don't have to like you, but I should respect you. And I think that respect is what we crave from others. Um, even maybe, but we often want the likes or ask for the likes when what we really want to have is the respect. Mm. And I think you get that. You get the respect by respecting others. It's a, it's just a mirror. And I guess we can confuse um, fame and adoration and money and these things as markers of respect, and they're not necessarily. Right. And that's where I go back to this idea of what you want to be doing is inventing a new way to have success, a different way of success. So money is very, it's very one-dimensional. The, the problem, again, is it tends to... Um, to be the best, it's, it's a single line. Mm. And um, you certainly need enough, but, but, but I've done this exercise with many, many people. In most cases, people's <laughs> dreams are not really being thwarted by money. You know, I, I do exercises with my kids and their friends. Okay, okay, I'm gonna, here's a thought experiment. I'm gonna have a magic wand, I'm gonna give you a billion dollars, <laughs> okay? The thing about a billion dollars is when you have a billion dollars, everything is free because the money just accumulates faster than you can spend it. So you have a billion dollars. Okay, what are you going to do with it? And they'll mention a couple of things. You know, maybe they're going to um, buy a boat or maybe buy a house or something like that. Hmm. And, and they're going to travel around the world or whatever it is. Okay, so buy a boat, buy a house. Okay, that doesn't – you still have a billion dollars, right? <laughs> you haven't done anything with that. And then they'll say, well, so they get more ambitious. And then they'll start to tell me these things. And it's like, okay, that's really good. But do you know you don't need a billion dollars to do that? Yeah. Right? I mean, it's like you don't need a billion dollars to spend some time traveling around the world. You can do that with a couple thousand dollars. You don't need a billion dollars. And so most of the time, a person's dream is not really being gated or thwarted by the money. It's so many other things that are involved. The confidence enthusiasm, grit, patience, other qualities, daring, risk. These are all the qualities that, that, that are often in short supply rather than the money. Mm. And so, um, yes, there's a certain amount of money needed for certain things. But the thing about not having money is that it's actually an advantage to many things. And that is, you know, it's like in, becoming innovative, become entrepreneur. The, the if 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 something could be solved or invented just through money, then the rich and the billionaires would have a monopoly on that, and they don't because these new inventions they're not because of lack of money. It's because of lack of imagination. It's because mm -hmm. of lack of someone willing to to do the hard work of inventing it, and that means that. A lot of the breakthroughs are done by inexperienced young people who don't have very many resources. And it's because they don't that they are forced to invent and be ingenious and be creative and produce them. Because if they had a lot of money, they wouldn't have done that. They would try to buy the solutions. Hmm. So when you're setting out, the fact that you have very few resources, weirdly, is actually to your advantage, if you understand that. Hmm. And keeping you hungry as well, like 
right. the feeling of I need to do this because I need to do this. Whatever. Right. Yeah. There's, you know, Dickens and others who were tremendous, prolific writers because they were desperate. <laughs> they just had a right for to keep their family alive. Yeah. Yeah. Another through line in the book that I, I think I've spotted <laughs> is this idea of getting a little bit better every day, every year or whatever it is. And yeah. the, the compound interest of that. And, and you, yeah. you, I think I'm right in, in, seeing that is talking financially but also on a skill set on anything really on right. anything relationships so i mean that's marriage works in the same way where you right. um you accumulate success over time incrementally with a very small delta mm. of improvement so if you can improve just 1% a year that's compounded over time. And we know 1% compounded over time is actually very, very, very powerful over mm. the long term. Mm. And um, if you can, you know, spend 1% of your day thinking about improving, that's even more powerful. So there's, so, so, so the, the gains can be fairly small, but if they're consistent and repeated over time, and that's the benefit. And so that's the benefit of when you're trying to do something creative of doing it on a regular basis, whether it's painting or singing or playing music or photography or writing or inventing, you need to kind of keep doing it. And there's so many reasons for that habitual repetition, which is that, one is that you can have that one percent improvement compounded. Two, you have much more of a likelihood of making something great because really great ideas need tons and tons of bad ideas to kind of arrive there. Sure. And, and they've proven this again and again that quantity actually matters in quality. And then the other reason is is that to be generous, um, you need to be able to. To, to give away things, to, 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 to offer to the world what it is you have, to be generous, you have to have confidence that you can make more. Yeah, I'm going to give this out because I know that there's more there. And that confidence comes from the fact that you're doing it all the time and you yeah. know that you, you have proven experience that, okay, I had some ideas today, maybe they didn't work, but tomorrow I'm going to have more and I'll keep going. And it's curious that the more you go to the well the deeper the well can become, right? So, so, so you're going back and you're actually making the well deeper by constantly going back to it. And so, um, and so that's, um, and then the fifth or fourth, I lost track of it. The um, advantage is, is that um, this came from Terry Gross at the, who did the radio show. She said there was something about um, doing something every day when, when, the, when there was a bad day and it didn't work out. It's like, okay, no matter. I'm, You'll do it again tomorrow, and I'll do better tomorrow. So there, yeah. so it's easier to overcome setbacks and disasters and things that bad days that don't work because you know that okay, tomorrow we'll start all over again, yeah. and we'll have another chance. Yeah, it's something I've definitely noticed in my own stuff, and with talking to the people for this as well. It's like when you start out, and if you're an actor and you have one play a year that you do, and it don't go yeah. that well. It's devastating, but when right. you're a professional and you do, you're on stage every night, some nights are going to be a bit shit compared right. to other nights, and you just like, okay, that's all right because we get another go tomorrow. So it's almost yeah. like 
amateurs take that stuff more seriously it's really yeah. it's kind of counterintuitive isn't it and the same with yeah. if you're pitching a book or anything it's like yeah. and it's rejected it could really stop you in your tracks and put you off doing it again when you've only done the one right yeah i call this sort of um failure management that's sort of what <laughs> you want to do you want to you want to keep your failures constant and small instead of letting them back up to be yes. these monumental things and so by doing things on an iterative ongoing basis prototyping things you get to manage your failures yes and there's something about criticism in that i guess as well isn't the sort of criticism and feedback to what you're doing i think it can still be painful or whatever but you just accept that people are going to like or not like it and in fact if you're doing something interesting as i guess we're saying there will be people who hate it which is okay right yeah so so yeah, you want you, you want more people to like it than hate it, but you can't avoid the people hating it. And as you said, if you're trying something you really new, if you're really kind of going, you're likely to get people who don't like it, and you have to understand that that's a small tax to pay for success. Right. Right. The tax for success is that there's going to be people who are very vocal about hating what it is that you do, but you just pay it. Sure, it's okay. There's a thousand people who hate what i do but there's two million people who love what i'm doing so i'm fine of course those numbers aren't in the beginning with a thousand true fans it may be that there's two people who hate what you're doing but you have a thousand who love it and that's okay too yeah you mentioned a thousand true fans you won't be surprised to know that as an independent musician and actor i'm a big fan of a thousand true fans right and i'm sure that a lot of people listening to this will be but if if people aren't just to sort of summarize it the idea that you can have a career from a thousand people who are so into what you do that they'll give you i forget the figure we would say 80 dollars 80 pounds or whatever a year and that's that could be your income or if you need more money you get more money from those fans or try and get more fans or maybe you can live on less it's been a, a a while since that you, you sort of first, first put that idea out. I think a little bit. Has it been revised recently? Do, what's the feedback? Have you got evidence of it working for people? So yeah, just to clarify that. So the idea was new technology, where you are having direct engagement with, with your with right. your fans, so you get the entire amount of money that they're spending on you instead of like a label or a publisher or studio. Yeah. where the money goes to them and they give you part of it. So because of it's going directly to you, you need fewer of them. And um, when I first proposed it in like 2008, it was just a theory. There was, no, there, was, there was no Kickstarter. There was no Patreon. There was no crowdfunding. There were very few tools about trying to do that and very few people who actually were doing it organically. They identified a couple of people who had ha- already had success careers with labels or studios mm-hmm. or publishers and then we're moving off of that to the, basically they were bringing their audience with them but since then of course every day i hear people who have succeeded in starting with that and it's very important to me to to to, to be clear that this path is an option Mm-hmm. doesn't take away working with studios or publishers. I myself go back and forth. This book is with the New York publisher and a lot of books I have self-published as well and with thousand true fans. So it's an option. And then secondly, it's an option that may not be for everybody mm-hmm. because it means engaging with your fans in a very constructive way. And uh, 
There are artists who don't want to deal with that at all, and that's fine. And there are artists who should not be dealing with it. Okay. And so um, that's fine too. And there are artists who actually decide that they started that way, but actually want to migrate into the um, publishers and stuff. And that's fine too. So what I would say is this is a fat, this thousand true fan mode mm-hmm. of having true fans, which will buy whatever you produce. You can have other fans around them and their true fans are actually some of the best marketers for your, for your, your fans. And um, if you, if you could find a thousand of them, this is a fantastic way to start. Mm-hmm. It's a very low entry way to start for anybody and you can give it a try and see how far you get. Again, you could graduate in different ways. If you're a duet, you need twice as many people, that kind of stuff. But it's, it's a way of starting without thinking that you need to have a million fans to have success. It's another way of redefining your success. Your success is a thousand, which is much more achievable for most people. And there's another part of it which is attractive, I think, which is you aren't beholden to uh, those middle agents. So you, right. your record label, you don't have a record label that's going to say you can't do that record, you can't do this, you can't do that. You don't have a film studio that's going to say you can't make The Life of Brian or whatever it is. It's you know, it's a direct access, which I guess has pluses and negatives because it does mean um, an artist can indulge themselves and put stuff out that isn't that good but that might be part of the journey that might be important it, it is part of it. i i'm a firm believer that you can only have you can only get to the really really great stuff by making a lot of bad stuff mm. okay no you don't necessarily need to be peddling the bad stuff or or showing it but you but you you have to you cannot get to the great stuff with without going through a lot of bad stuff somehow or other and so um as you get over, as you get as you get more experience, as you do it more, you can kind of go through that cycle faster. You can do a lot of the bad stuff internally. You can um, um, throw out more of it, but you kind of have to, to 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 have some mechanism for 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 generating it. But but I think you're you're right that you have a lot more freedom as a self thousand true fan than you do with the labels. Because they are going to be much more cautious and conservative, and and that's their business. Um, and and there's another a third advantage to this process, which is that um, even if your interest and your passion is only appealing to one in a million people, with today's global market and the internet reaching billions of people, um it's almost certain that there are a thousand still a thousand people who will share your obsession mm. and your interest in this one in a million uh, appeal. And so that means that theoretically every single niche that we could come up with could be supported by a thousand fans. The problem is matching them, finding them, them finding you. We yeah. don't have a lot of good technology that allows us. So that's a real hurdle, but it is possible. Yeah, and in, and some of the stuff that we might have been using to do that in recent years, from like my perspective, is not so good as it was. So, like your social media doesn't seem well, to be. It was, it was. I mean, it was never really that good in mm. uh, in, in doing this matchmaking. Okay, it could be improved and may be improved still. 
So, I mean, it was never meant to do that, but it was, it was helpful for mm -hmm. a lot of people. Um, but we still need much better tools to do that matchmaking. And maybe, maybe AI might be able to facilitate some of that matchmaking. Mm. Well, let's go on to AI then. That's cool. Or okay. I know that you like to say AIs because the perspective being it's it's not going to become, it's right. not this one super, superhuman-like AI that's going to do everything. There's going to be different different yeah. tools for the jobs. Multiple species, we think of them that ways. Mm. Now, there's a lot of sort of sci-fi light fear around AI um, for all sorts of reasons, but let's talk about sort of as, as creators and creatives and stuff. Is is that fear justified? Are any of those reasons genuine, or are we all just being a little bit dystopian about it? I think we're imitating Hollywood all our images of what the future of AI looks like are been formed by Hollywood, mm. which requires that kind of dystopia to make a good story. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard to make a, a great story where everything is working out. It's very boring. <laughs> so, um, so we have been shaped. Our ideas about it have been shaped by, by Hollywood and they are mostly fantasies. They're fantasies in the sense that they are signing way too much power to just an IQ alone. IQ can do lots of things. But there is so much in the world, as I was saying before, that requires in addition to that, that to get things done to accomplish requires a wide variety of different talents and abilities. And intelligence is only one. And the AI doomers tend to exclude all other qualities except IQ and super intelligence as having an effect on the world. So I would say, yes, by and large, it's a fantasy. The evidence so far... I have been trying to find a single artist who has been fired, lost her job because of AI. I have not found. There's a couple other tiny occupations where there have been people lost their jobs. They were in um, translation. Mm. You know, the people who were doing like translation for sub for YouTube, they were humans. Well, there's home, almost no humans doing that anymore. It's all AI. But in terms of artists, I have not found a single case of a single artist who has lost their job because of AI. So we'd have to say, given the evidence so far, it's a total fantasy about the um, losing job. And I would say overall, of all the things that worry about, the unemployment is the one that I'm simply not worried about it because the general patterns of technologies are is that there'll be more opportunities to created through the AI than any uh, one's lost. You are won't lose your job, but you're likely to lose your job description, what you actually do. I've heard from different programmers that 50% of the tasks they have are now being done by AI, and AI has amplified their ability to do the other 50%. Okay? Hmm. So... Your job will change, but you're unlikely to lose a job. So that one's not really a viable worry. Interesting. We'll come back to the ones that you think might be a viable worry then. But before we go away from the, the creator side, just something news-wise recently that sort of thought was interesting. Ed Sheeran's just been in court. Uh, it was what? Ed Sheeran has recently been in court for um, allegedly... There was a court case basically saying that he had 
copyright infringed on a song, basically. And okay. the reference being, it's not the, the melody or anything, it's the chord sequence is very similar to that of the song, and the groove is very similar to that of the song. And it was kind of a ridiculous court case, and he, he won he, 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 at the end. But I sort of thought, well, if a real human songwriter or creator can be in court for being influenced by or borrowing a chord sequence and a groove, right? There's AIs out there that can make John Lennon sing a brand new song that was, you know, he's been dead 40 years, but we've got his... So if a real-life songwriter can be in trouble for being influenced by other music, but an AI can create a very, I wouldn't say very genuine sounding, but fairly convincing and presumably can only get better, where's the balance there for a songwriter or for any creator, if you see what I mean? Yeah. So, so you're right. I think this is an area where the um, the worries are legitimate, and I would say in this case, mm. um, they point to the fact that that I think copyright has sort of reached its limits as a as a framing for intellectual property. It's right. just horrible. It's a horrible system that we have. Just not suited to the modern era, particularly with the advent of AI. So we need a we need some we need a different framework. Okay, it's very clear that um, first of all that setting aside just music and images, copyright we also apply it to other inventions, to software, and all these other kinds of things. Which and 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 the system has been creaking, trying to adapt to these new uses. And part of what I would say. Um, like going back to the broader picture where we have characters like Mickey Mouse being copyrighted forever is um is is there's another one of the time limits of the monopolies that we're giving. So part of what we're gonna be having to redo is rethink what we want to protect and how long we protect it and what kind of who we give protection to. I think it's crazy it doesn't make any sense that uh, ai with a human can create something that can't be copyrighted or it can't be protected mm. obviously if we're going to get protection it's going to have to extend into that world but how does that work it's very very hard to understand because you can have an ai creating so much so fast so we may have different kinds of protection we may have it for different lengths we may have and here's the thing the thing about that I always suggest stress about rights is that for every right there needs to be a corresponding duty obligation. Mm. You can't really have a system where you have only rights and no obligations and duties. And so what we can also do is we can begin to do a more creative pairing of like, well, you have these rights with these obligations, or you can choose to have these rights with these obligations. Mm. Okay. And so, um, uh, so I'm suggesting that, yes, if you think about copyright and AI, it, it's just tons and tons of inconsistencies and weirdnesses and things. And I'm saying that's because the system of copywriting, of, of thinking about the copies, just doesn't work. The emphasis on the copies, is, is, it doesn't work. We have to have a different framework. I don't, I mean, I've heard a couple of little things, suggestions. Like one of the things I think there should be is the right of, and obligations of reference, which is when you're training these um, big models on human work, 
there should be some right of reference. Like, do you want it to be referenced, trained on? Do you get any compensation if it's trained on something you produce? Those kinds of things that don't exist right now. We might want to have a some kind of rights and duties of referencing. So I, I'm not so... I'm not so optimistic that this is going to happen soon, mm. but I'm pretty sure that there has to be some adjustment on the long term. So for now, it's just a conundrum, and I don't see many elegant solutions using the copyright framework to solve them. And AI maybe is going to suggest to us a better copyright system. Well, so. it should. <laughs> yeah. It's in its interest to do so. Yeah, Um but, but but of course that's the the AI which we're trying to get away from. Yeah. So some AIs may be interested in that. Yeah. Um, can you talk about universal personal intern? Because hearing that yeah. made a lot of sense to me and made me sort of go, ah, I see. Okay, good. Yeah, that's what we have right now with the chatbots and image generators. The way that they're built is that they tend to they're they're kind of engineered to optimize plausible responses, plausible work. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, what would be, what would the most, what would be the most average human thing to do to say next to a response to this? <laughs> and um, I, I know from working with them myself uh, for the past year, um, they tend to produce work that we equivalent to a, an intern. And that's very, very, very valuable. You know, I use it like to help move with the first draft. Mm-hmm. Um, other people use it for, and then for research and for synthesis and for suggestions and for presentations and bullet points. But it's always the sense of the work is really good and helpful, but it's not good enough to pass off for my own. So it's like it's like the intern. It's like publishing the intern's work is be embarrassing. Everybody can tell. And what you want to do is you use the intern work to help you produce something really good and great. And that means going back and forth with the intern constantly of saying, I didn't mean that, I meant this. Can you be a little mm-hmm. bit more uh can you be a little bit more polite? Can you be a little bit more snarky? Can you be a little bit more um ironic? And so you're pushing it constantly in this kind of conversation to get it to go above the average, to go above this sort of um, wisdom of the crowd average that it tends to produce. And so it's like an intern that you're trying to get to be better and you're having to work with it. And um, so you can't just click the button and publish what they what they want. What they make is very impressive, can be very, very helpful, but I've never seen a case where it's just ready to roll off and, and, and use it without embarrassment. And so um, the grand new gift we have is everybody has access to this 24 hours a day. And that's transformative in the way that we had the personal navigator in your car with, uh, or on your phone with, with GPS. Hmm. And, and um, now you could navigate. That's why Uber was possible. You yeah. didn't need the London cabbies to do it and memorize the knowledge. Anybody had the London cabbie sitting next to them. And that was a tremendous gift to the world. And now we're going to have these universal personal interns available to everybody. 
Is it possible that those interns will? Because they're going to get better, presumably. Could they? Sure. Could they do it better than than we could? Current models, no, not that much better because they're being trained on everything. They're they're, they're making an average of it. Hmm. So there are people who are attempting to say, "Well, I'm going to train mine on just the best stuff." The problem is, what does that even mean? Like, okay, for some people, they want kind of a PG version. They don't want it to be as racist and sexist as the average human is. Mm. So they want it to be more woke. It's like, well, what are you going to tell it? Like, the, even the great classics depict wars and horrible you know, effects. In fact, the better the literature, the more horrible stuff that's encountered in it. Mm. Do you? How do you shield the AI from that? How do you elevate the AI to be better than the average human, we don't know. So it's theoretically maybe possible to have it, when you're training on humans, to have it be better than the, what it has been trained on, hmm. but that's not going to come quickly. Hmm. Hmm. And maybe back into science fiction, I suppose, but it's the idea that the AI AIs might choose What's better? <laughs> so, sort of on a sort of conscious level, uh, I don't, I don't think that fits into the way the current way that they're being made. Now, it may be in the future. Again, so far, uh, we can talk about the present. So far, the way all these large language models transforming uh, neural nets work is that um, they're trained. They need millions of examples of things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so in order to tell the difference between the cat and a dog, they have to have several million examples of cats and several million examples of dogs. That's not true for humans. A human toddler who's learning can tell the difference between cat and dog with just 12 examples. Okay? So, but we can't do that for now. But right now, we need these large language models. We need millions of things. And that means that in certain certain sense, it's going to be average. It's going to be average, statistical thing. It's very hard to elevate something when you need billions of samples for it to to go. So we can elevate them. We can begin that if we had an idea of what it meant to be better than humans. We can say smarter than humans. We don't even know what that means. Mm. Most people say, well, it's just thinking like humans, but faster. <laughs> what does, uh, what would a, uh, AI that smart, was smarter than humans, what would it do or how would you know? It could take those same tests and get perfect score. All right. But there are humans that can do that. Um, you know, there's some things a calculator can do that humans can't do. They can multiply. So you could say the calculator is already a superhuman. Is that true? Is your calculator a superhuman? So... <laughs> We're stuck with the fact that we tend to think of intelligence as a single dimension when it's actually many, many, many different directions at once, and we can optimize some of them, but always at a trade-off of others. So I think as we go into the AI world, we're going to have a a more common response, which is what I call dumb smarten, meaning that we're going to accuse these AIs of being dumb smarten, meaning they're incredibly smart in one thing and incredibly stupid in the others. 
Okay, you'll we'll be driving the, the AI that, that's going to drive your cars will be really good at navigating, but it may be really terrible at having a conversation or <laughs> at um, writing poetry or or maybe it can't even do it math very well. I don't know, but we're going to be oh you dumb smart and thing because you're brilliant here, but you can't even do this, and that's because they're engineered specifically, and there's always trade offs, mm-hmm. and so. Um, I think the idea of smarter than human is in itself a very misguided idea. Okay, cool. Just to get back to the book then, (laughs) Um, something else that struck me, this idea that the best time to do stuff is probably now. So coming back to earlier on, you were talking about the reasons not to do things, often financial, you know, the world's terrible, all the rest of it. But that's not the case then. So having a family, doing what you want to do, do it now. Is that the right idea? Yeah, the right time to do something is often right now. And um, I, you don't want to go too far with this. It's like saying, okay, you know, <laughs> um, midlife crises are, are somewhat propelled by, by those kinds of things. <laughs> um, but what, what it means is that um, if you, you know, um, we we often expect and want conditions to be more perfect than they need to be in order for us to start something. Mm. Just as this is money is often not really the, the constraint. Some of the other things that we say are preventing us from doing are also often not really valid and don't really constrain us. So, um, you know, I know people who have dreamed of traveling around the world, but they're kind of, they're they're needing to I don't know have everything all lined up whether it's they need to have a million dollars in the bank or they have to have um um I don't know maybe their health or you know I, 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 I there are legitimate ones but 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 oftentimes in my own experience the things that keep people from doing things upon examination prove to be far more internal and rather than external okay and so the the external things are usually not the real constraints um and so if you're finding that you're hesitating for something you have to really look in within yourself because it's very likely that that's the true constraints and not anything in the outward world from money to time mm-hmm. to other things mm-hmm. okay and a final thought then, because this just jumped out at me again today, um, to have a great trip, head towards an interest rather than a place. Yeah, we've learned this tremendously, um, even with the family. Every kid, we get to choose a passion that we would travel around. Oh, great. Like our son, one when he was very young, he was into dinosaurs. He wanted to do dinosaurs, so we rented an RV and drove around to all the dinosaur digs and dinosaur awesome. museums and dinosaur monuments in the Western states. And it was fabulous. Everybody, we all enjoyed it. So you can have one on cheeses, going around to cheeses in Europe, whatever it is, or, you know, people who were, um, I was a beekeeper. I would visit different beekeeping <laughs> things around the world. Um, it's It's a much better way of getting to, interesting places you can still go through tourist hot spots but you'll get way beyond that where you'll have the really fantastic experiences um 
that you just simply wouldn't get without kind of focusing on a, a passion rather than a place. That sounds great. Okay. Kevin, thank you so much. That's all been really fascinating. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. I've enjoyed the book. Hope that it's a great success. Oh, that's another question, actually. What would success look like with that book? What, <laughs> what, what is your definition of success with a thing that you've made? Yeah, yeah. So this is this little book that's very easy to read, people, because it's got just sentences here. Someone was telling me that there was recently heard that people don't remember books they remember sentences uh. and he thought that this would be really great because this is just sentences <laughs> and uh success for me would be um that people that people um would gift it to others they found so good they would gift it to others and by the way if you're listening and you have kids um get this book because they're probably not going to listen to you but you <laughs> can point them to this and they may listen to the book um so that would be success for me yeah and there's you know it's that thing of this the stuff that we know and we've experienced one in this jumped out was something about if you've got a if you're unsure if you can carry a load in one trip make sure yeah. that you do it in two so like, we all right. know that because we've done it but we still think it's easier to struggle with this with one trip from the car like bloody guitar amps or whatever it is and it's always well, better to do two trips why do we do all, it I, I repeat that to myself all the time now it's like could I do this in two? Would it be less risky? I'm not even going to bother. I just kind of like automatically, no, I'm going to do two trips. Yeah. And then we do two trips. So, um, and, and you lose two minutes, right? And then, but five hours if everything spilled. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. So, so some of it is practical things like, um, uh, re- if you find, lose something in your house and you find it again, don't return it to where you found it. Return it to where you first looked at. Yeah, look for it. Beautiful. So, um, yeah. So, hopefully, it's helpful to folks. I appreciate your attention for it and your enthusiasm. You have a great spirit. I wish you the best. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. Join us next time on the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast. Until then, please subscribe, rate, and review, and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects I'm working. Thank you. Goodbye.